This is the Emergency Medical Minute, sponsored by Health One. So um, anyone who works with me clinically knows I just love talking about magnesium, and I want to just provide you with a couple of things that you should be doing around magnesium if you're not already doing them. So kind of a couple simple pearls. The first is give magnesium to any patient with moderate to severe hypokalemia. Do not check magnesium levels. Serum magnesium levels are very weakly predictive of magnesium stores within the body and are misleading and are generally discouraged. As some of you may know, they've essentially been kind of removed from our lab uh, panels within within our hospitals for, for, for this reason. This is a nice study, goes back uh, some years in Archives of Internal Medicine. This is a link if, if you have this electronically. Basically, Multiple studies have demonstrated the poor performance of serum magnesium levels. You're much better off just uh, assessing the patient's likelihood of having low magnesium, malnutrition, diuretics, and the presence of hypokalemia is very strongly predictive of low serum magnesium scores. And because of the requirement for magnesium and the enzymatic pathways involved with reabsorption of potassium by the kidney, if you don't replete the magnesium, you won't be successful in getting up the, the, um, the potassium level. So I think, you know, a simple, easy to remember cutoff is a, is a K at or below three. And I'll give all those patients a couple grams of mag. And then remember, just a plug, uh, IV potassium is really should be reserved for critically ill patients or patients who can't take PO. You're really just treating yourself with IV potassium most of the time. Uh, it's slow, painful, and ineffective. Patients with hypokalemia have, you know, um, hundreds of milliequivalents of potassium, usual body deficits. And so oral potassium replacement is always preferred as long as the patient can take PO. It's faster, safer, and more effective. I do 80 at least and usually repeat it. So if I have a... It gives us a little thing, but you can do them sequentially, right? So if I fit some on the night shift and I have a, you know, someone who's been puking and their K's 2.4, I'm going to give them two grams of mag, 80 a PO, usually give them 10 of IV at the same time because they're there for a long time, repeat it, give them another 80, and then send them home with more. Okay. Yeah, they, they need a lot. Yeah, go ahead. Can you give mag orally? You can. The problem with mag orally is it causes diarrhea, and it's not rapidly absorbed. And so if you're trying to affect a change in potassium, I usually will give it IV. And remember, our our order sets will prompt it over two out two grams over two hours. So you have to tell the nurses otherwise. So we'll give it over 20 minutes or you know 30 minutes or something. Yeah, good point. Good. Uh, next thing, if you're not already doing it, is um, how many people are using mag routinely for AFib? I do not see a patient with AFib that I do not give mag to, or very few. Yeah, it, it, this the true story. Exactly, it's true. Everybody gets mag. So um, this is well studied. There's a huge breadth of literature examining this, and it's wi widely underutilized. Not all AFib. Right. Good point. So um, AFib. So so um, magnesium decreases automaticity, increases the refractory period of the AV node. As such, it's kind of a perfect adjunct to rate control in AFib with RVR. 
Um, this was one nice study from Annals, but there's dozens of them. Mag sulfate, when used to supplement other standing standard rate reduction therapies, enhances rate reduction conversion to sinus rhythm in patients with rapid AFib. So when you see a patient who comes into the ED, new onset AFib, minimally symptomatic, what is the likelihood that that patient will spontaneously convert in the next 24 hours? 50%. So I'm not saying we shouldn't shock patients in AFib. We can do it. And there's a lot of reasons why it might be appropriate. But it's important to understand the natural history of this disease is most of these people convert spontaneously. The other thing is I see a lot of, I'm diverging a little bit, there is good literature examining kind of the relative efficacy of rate control using the calcium channel blockers versus the beta blockers, et cetera, et cetera. Point being, if you're seeing someone with, with AFib with RVR and they're hemodynamically stable, I would encourage you to give two grams of IV mag plus whatever you use to rate control. And I will we'll make a, a plug for oral beta blockers as opposed to IV calcium channel blockers and drips, which are use, usually unnecessary. And I, I would, the exception are the patients who are, you know, critical, they're unstable, they need to go to the ICU. But the dilt drip is kind of, is, 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 is uh, a little crazy. But, but that's a whole nother lecture. Is there any data that shows us to give magnesium? Initially, you have an increased rate of it? Conversion, Conver yes, absolutely. That, that study found an increased rate of, of, uh, of conversion with, with uh, to sinus rhythm with, uh, with mag. Um, so, and then second to last thing uh, is around preeclampsia. So this is something that's kind of interesting. We, we recent, the reason I popped this in here is we had a, a lengthy discussion with our OB service recently, and I attached a link to the current ACOG guidelines. So why do we give MAG in patients with severe, severely elevated blood pressure in pregnancy or preeclampsia? What's the purpose? Seizure prophylaxis. Yeah, exactly. So it prevents seizures. And so the ACOG guideline is that it's not recommended as treatment for their hypertension. So it doesn't re replace the treatment of their hypertension. You need to still do that. But in patients, regardless of whether they have um, severe gestational hypertension, whether they have true preeclampsia, meaning they have proteinuria as well, with or without severe features, such as positive PIH labs, like uric acid, LFT abnormalities, platelet abnormalities, or true eclampsia, all of those patients should get IV mag. And we discovered that at least at our shop, we were underdosing mag. So we were giving, you know, two grams. It's four grams IV over 20 minutes. Um, so that's a simple pearl. Use it to prophylax against seizures. It doesn't replace or you know, uh, uh, replace uh, the treatment of the blood pressure itself. And it's not just for, for true preeclampsia. So um, lastly, and then I'm done, should we give MAG to patients with asthma exacerbations in ED? Um, Nice Cochrane review that was done originally in 2000, redone in 2014, has gotten tipped slightly towards suggesting the efficacy of MAG is, is real, although it's probably reserved in the sickest of patients. It does not have an impact on vital signs. It does not have an impact on mortality. Its impact is on decreased hospital admissions. It doesn't have an impact on pulse oximetry readings. Um, I think it's reasonable to give. This, like many um, meta-analyses, is 
very problematic and limited by the very poor quality of studies that 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 it was derived from. And as such, um, we really have no idea about whether there's potential harm with MAG in these patients. A lot of these patients get hypotensive, et cetera, but it's probably safe. Um, I, in short, I reserve MAG for those patients who are refractory to initial rounds of treatment, but I don't withhold it if I think they look bad. If you enjoy the Emergency Medical Minute, please help us out by rating us on iTunes. For more free medical education, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Make a donation and subscribe to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.